Next, we want to talk about tube feeding, also known as enteral nutrition. And that means it is um, feeding something through a tube, a catheter, a stoma, anything leading to a functioning GI tract. It can be going through the nose, through the esophagus, uh, through the side of the abdomen, into either the stomach or the jejunum. So lots of different options. Uh, they're, they're all uh, going to operate kind of the same way, though, as far as uh, how we do the feedings. But let's uh, talk about the tubes first. So the reasons why we might give somebody a feeding tube would be um, anorexia, some kind of oral facial cancer or surgery, or a gastrectomy like we just talked about, somebody who's in a persistent vegetative state that needs to be nourished to be kept alive, um, anybody with severe burns who can't eat, chemo or radiation patients sometimes may not be able to eat because of the nausea, so they would put a J-tube in them. So it goes to the jejunum, which bypasses the stomach, which means there's not going to be the nausea or risk for aspiration. Or sometimes people with psych issues who just refuse to eat. So there's a picture of a few different kinds of tubes, and we will have a chance to play with them in class, and uh, I'll tell you more about them then. Um, if they go through the nose, it would be an NG or an NJ, nasogastric or nasal jejunal tube. Uh, the NJ would go to the small intestine again. Um, these both have very small lumens, so they're easily clogged. So if you're going to be administering medications through here, well, it'd be best if you could get them uh, in liquid form, but if you have to crush pills, make sure they're crushed very well and flush very well. These tubes are going to be about 22 to 26 inches on average. Um, we always need to confirm placement before uh, putting anything in them. If they're being dropped for suction uh, to remove, you know, to decompress the stomach, like if somebody has a bowel obstruction or something, uh, you'll know when you get it in the right place because the stuff starts coming out. And it'd be a really good idea uh, to have that already connected to suction before you put it in because it's going to start coming out. If it is for feeding, we need to confirm placement with x-ray. So make sure they get an x-ray before you start any food. They should be taped at the nose and there's usually a marker, there's, there's um, inch or centimeter markers so you can tell where it is. Um, we always wanna assess that and make sure that it's still in the right place. If it comes untaped and it falls out a little bit, even up to six to eight inches, you could still push it back in because um, it's still gonna be in the stomach or the jejunum. But um, if, if, they, you know, if they take it out all the way, then they're gonna have to have a new one put in assuming they still need it. And there are some securing devices uh, to hold them in place that we'll talk about as well. Next thing is a PEG tube, percutaneous endoscopic gastric tube. And so gastric means it goes into the stomach. Uh, we'll watch a couple of videos about how these are put in. These are gonna be done in endoscopy or um, under, under fluoroscopy in the OR. So we're not, we don't need to worry about how those go in exactly. Um, and then there's a PEG tube, PEJ, percutaneous endoscopic jejunal tube. So same idea, just goes to the jejunum. And again, with the jejunum, it's better that there's no um, risk for nausea. Uh, some tubes, and I'll, I'll show you an example of one uh, in class, they have uh, two, two lumens, and one ends in the stomach and one ends in the intestine. And we'll talk about why they do that. Why don't you uh, maybe think about that before then. So when can we start feedings? Um, it depends on why the patient's getting it, but uh, we want to make sure they have bowel sounds for one thing, 
and we want to make sure that there's been an x-ray to confirm placement. Um, when we do feedings, the head of bed should be greater than 30 degrees. Um, again, we're going to use gravity to keep the stuff where we want it, and we don't want it to come up, so if they were lying down, it would easily come up, uh, because remember who this person is, they may not have a stomach or a part of a stomach, their sphincters may not be there, so they lie down, things could just come straight up. So they have to stay at least 30 degrees, and some policies will say 45 even. The head of bed needs to remain elevated for 30 to 60 minutes after the feeding. And there's, there's different um, uh, ways we're gonna give the feedings. So administration of feedings, one is a bolus, and this resembles your normal feeding pattern. You eat three or four or five times a day. So this is where they're giving small amounts, 300 to 400 mLs, over 30 to 60 minutes. So they might just open up a can of Ensure or something and pull, pour that in um, every few hours, given every three to six hours. It could be continuous, which would be for a 24-hour period, and that means the patient has to remain in a semi-fowler's position. They have to remain upright. And sometimes it's uh, it might be 20 or 22 hours. Maybe not. it might not be completely around the clock, but it's most of the day. And then cyclic, those are going to be given over an 8 to 16-hour period, and they usually start those at night, uh, maybe at like 8 o'clock at night, so that they can get the majority of it in while they're sleeping, and it doesn't impact their day so much. So they can be disconnected during the day when it's um, when the feeding is completed. So the tube positioning, we want to check placement before we do anything. So before you start a new feeding, before you give any medications, before you do a flush, you always want to check placement and residual. So we want to see what's left in there. Um, continuous feedings have a pump that's similar to an IV pump. It, it works very much the same way, but it is simpler. It's a little less sophisticated, but it has an occlusion alarm. So just like the IV, when they bend the arm, it'll start beeping. If that line gets occluded in some way and it's not going in or it gets clogged by the, the feeding or it gets bent or whatever, um, that alarm's gonna go off and it'll make you come in and assess that. Some machines, some setups have a water bag that infuses every hour right along with the food. So it's kind of a Y-tubing, almost like a blood setup if you want to think of it that way. It's a Y-tubing. One bag goes, uh, carries water and one bag carries the feeding and they both go in at the same time. Um, they may have it where you can set it up where it runs 60 mLs of food and then 20 mLs of water. Or it runs, maybe on time, food for 55 minutes and then water for 5 minutes. So um, sometimes they're automatic like that and that's really nice because it helps keep the line flushed out because that feeding can um, kind of clog up. It's kind of thick, it's, um, uh, it's, it's kind of like milky, I guess you might say, uh, but it's got a lot of sugar and things in it, and so it can tend to clog up the line, and those lines are sometimes quite small. So it's nice if you have that kind of setup. If you don't, that means you have to irrigate it yourself with water before and after each feeding and each medication administration, and just make sure that that line gets completely flushed out so it stays open for when you are doing the feeding. So before the feeding, we want to aspirate the gastric contents and measure the amount of residual. And there's going to be policies about this or orders specifically patient by patient. Um, an example of one might be if it's greater than 100, um, wait half an hour and check it again. Okay. And when you pull that out, that 100 mLs, you got a syringe there you're holding with all this stuff that's been in their stomach. What do you do with that? Do we throw it out or give it back? 
we need to give it back to them because if we don't, this guy could throw them into an acid base or electric electrolyte imbalance. Uh, there's a lot of stuff in there in the stomach that we need to keep in. So um, always give that back. There may be an order where it says if the residual is greater than, say, 200, discard what is greater than 200, but return the 200. So just know your, <coughs> know your policy and know your orders. Some general nursing considerations for people with tube feeds. Um, if anyone is immunocompromised, the water flush should be sterile water. Otherwise, you can just use sink water or regular bottled water. We want to do daily weights in labs and look at them. Um, we're going to need to assess them and see how their levels are. Now, when somebody's first getting on a tube feeding <clears throat> after a recent GI surgery, they're going to be uh, the, the surgeon and the registered dietitian are going to be working together to make sure that that patient has all the nutrients that they need. And so they're going to, um, you know, trial and error again. They're going to make up a formula, give it to them, and then check their labs the next day and see how that worked. And if their labs are out of whack, then they're going to adjust it. So every day that's going to be changing. And so that's important for you as a nurse to make sure that you have the right bag. Always compare the information on the bag to the order. Uh, sometimes two nurses will do that. They'll look back and forth and call it off and make sure they have the right, um, the right bag because the pharmacy could have sent up yesterday's bag, you know, by mistake. Um, so that's why daily weights in labs are important. We don't want these people losing weight. So we want them to be maintaining or gaining. And um, if they have, they may also check their urine. And if they have um, glucose in their urine, that means they're going to need more insulin in the feeding. So um, a lot of things to consider. So speaking of insulin, they will be doing glucose checks <clears throat> um, initially when it started and then every four to six hours, depending on policy or, or orders. Um, because there's a lot of glucose in this stuff, so we need to stay on top of that and then give the patients insulin. Uh, we're always going list, <coughs> to listen for bowel sounds before feedings. Accurate eyes and nose, as always. Um, label the bottle and the tubing when you start it, date and time. Feedings have a life of 8 to 24 hours, generally 24. Uh, the tubing needs to be changed every 24 hours, no more than that. So um, typically, like if a feeding is up for 20 or 22 or 24 hours, you just discard the whole thing when it's done or, or when the 24-hour mark has hit, and then you get all new setup. If you have um, the bolus dosing where you're doing it several times a day, uh, you know, you're going to just give, um, give the, the bag of, or the um, can of Ensure or whatever every few hours, but you need to always look at the tubing and make sure it's still good. The formula that you're feeding them should be room temp or body temp. Sometimes they're stored in a refrigerator, so they should be taken out, left out for a while before uh, instilling them because it could um, give the patient a chill. There are some complications listed here next. Vomiting, diarrhea, constipation, dehydration. Uh, I'm going to let you think on those for a little bit, and then we will talk about those in class. You guys can figure out what's going to cause those different things to happen. Aspiration is something that can happen. Um, if, if that does, it's probably because their head of bed was down. Uh, so, or maybe we didn't check the residual. There already was a lot in the stomach and then we instilled more. So it was more than the stomach could handle. So it came up. Um, the clogged tube, that happens sometimes if it's not been flushed adequately. Uh, that's, that's a problem. So use liquid medications whenever possible. Like I said before, if 
you can't get them liquid, make sure they're crushed into a really fine powder and then flushed with plenty of water. And uh, I would look at protocols, but a good policy is to use 30 to 50 mLs of water between medications and then flush pretty good at the end as well. And, you know, maybe 100 or something. Unless someone's on a fluid restriction, you want to be careful about that. But if it does get clogged, you can put in warm water or hot water and kind of try to push it through just a little bit and kind of try to use a piston action with the big syringe and try to force through it. Uh, something that you would not see in a policy unless it is to forbid it uh, would be to use soda, like some Coke or Sprite. Um, that's kind of an old nurse trick. Uh, I wouldn't, wouldn't do that as a student, but um, when you're working, some of the older nurses might do that. You put in a little bit of soda in there and it, you know, the bubbles kind of just break up the clog. <clears throat> a couple other problems for tubes, skin irritation, where it's either going into the skin, if it's going into the abdomen, or if it's taped around the nose, if it's going in the nose, um, that could be a problem. Pulling out the tube, of course, that's going to be a problem. The peg and pedge tubes, they have a bubble, of like a, an inflatable bubble that's on the inside, but somebody can still pull that out. Somebody that's confused to just yank really good on that thing, and I've seen it a couple times. So um, that can happen. And then the feeding is just going to the bed. You come in and there's food dripping on the floor. Gerontologic considerations, um, well, they're the ones that are likely to pull it out probably because they're you know somebody that's confused they are going to be more vulnerable to all the complications so fluid and electrolyte imbalances can happen more quickly glucose intolerance and inability to handle large volumes so they may we want to run we may want to run their feeding a little more slowly and they're going to have an increased risk of aspiration so make really certain that they're sitting up well okay we're going to start out the gi unit now so we're going to talk about nursing care of the patient with GI diseases, uh, including hiatal hernia, esophageal cancer, diverticuli, strictures and varices, achalasia, and ending today with GERD, gastroesophageal reflex. So first with hiatal hernia, what it is, it's a herniation of part of the stomach. It goes through the hiatus, which is the hole in the, in the diaphragm through which the esophagus runs and part of the stomach goes up through that. So that's why it's also known as a diaphragmatic hernia or esophageal hernia, because part of the stomach is coming up where the esophagus uh, should be. So uh, part of the stomach goes into the esophagus through the opening of the diaphragm. There's two types, sliding and paraesophageal. Sliding is very much more common. Uh, the stomach slides into the thoracic cavity when they lie down, and then it slides back down when they sit up. And 50% of patients that have this are asymptomatic. They don't even know that they have it. So they lie down, the stomach comes up into the thoracic cavity. When they sit up, it goes back down. Paraesophageal, all or part of the stomach pushes through the diaphragm beside the esophagus. So some causes is commonly structural changes, so weakening of the muscles of the diaphragm, or intra-abdominal pressure. So anything that increases abdominal pressure, like obesity or pregnancy, heavy lifting, tumors, ascites, anything that's pushing up on the stomach. It needs a space to go, and so it, it ends up going through the hiatus. So hiatal hernias can lead to GERD, esophagitis, esophageal stenosis, hemorrhage from erosion, strangulation of the hernia, and regurgitation with tracheal aspiration. So it's definitely not a good thing. It needs to be addressed. 
Most commonly, they will have the patient eliminate alcohol and stop smoking. And these two things are going to be indicated for all of the GI disorders that we talk about from here on out. So everything, alcohol and cigarettes are implicated. So they need to stop or reduce both of those. We also want to elevate the head of the bed because again, when they lie down, it tends to get worse. And then avoid straining or lifting and weight reduction if that's a, a, an issue. If they have an obese, if they have a large diaphragm, they will um, need to lose that. And then teaching, we're going to talk about this again in GERD in a little bit, but uh, with a lot of the GI stuff, the teaching is going to be small frequent meals. And this says six. So several small frequent meals. So the three meal a day plan that we have here is not really ideal. We want to eat um, smaller portions more often. And also limit liquids with meals because the more your stomach gets filled up, the more it's going to need another place to go. So they should sit up an hour after meals, again, because um, that makes the uh, stomach come up in the thoracic cavity. And then avoid anticholinergics. Why is that important? Let's think about what anticholinergics do. Do they increase or decrease stomach emptying? Well, they inhibit the parasympathetic nervous system, which increases digestion. So if they're inhibiting it, that means it's going to delay emptying. It's, it's going to um, decrease digestion. So there is a surgical intervention they can do if the lifestyle modifications don't work, and it's called anisin fundiplication. And this is for GERD and hiatohernia. And the surgeon wraps around part of the stomach, the top of the stomach, around the esophagus. And then that helps hold it in place. And the post-op care is going to be the same for any abdominal surgery, and we're going to talk a lot about um, all of those. But basically, small frequent meals, get them up walking, soon as possible, bowel sounds are going to be your focused assessment. Next, let's talk about esophageal cancer. Uh, this occurs mostly in the middle and inferior portions, and it can be an ulcerated lesion, often advanced before it's seen or the patient experiences symptoms. There does tend to be an occupational exposure risk, so anyone that works with cement or lye, and it is also related to GERD, alcohol and smoking. So there's over 17,000 new cases a year and only 3,800 of them are in women, so much more common in men, and 15,800, almost 16,000 deaths annually, and that's from 2018. It accounts for only 1% of the cancers in the U.S., but the five-year survival rate is less than 20%, so it is not good. Uh, it says the cause is unknown, but it is related to GERD and smoking and alcohol as well. Um, uh, frequently. And the incidence increases with age and it's also increased in African Americans and Alaskan Natives. So risk factors, smoking, central obesity, so that means you have just a large abdomen, Barrett's esophagus, and that is when uh, the uh, acids are coming up through because of GERD into the esophagus and it burns the lining, changes the lining into different kinds of cells, and then it, it would continue erosion that puts you at risk for cancer excessive alcohol intake and diets low in fruits and vegetables. So high meat diets are often uh, to blame for a lot of the cancers. There's a, there was a BBC study that said that life choices are behind more than four in 10 cancers. And you can see that on canvas, I believe. So let's look at smoking, all the good things that are in cigarettes. So there's a slide here that has um, all of the compounds that are in 
cigarettes, including lighter fluid, cadmium, which is in batteries, nicotine is an insecticide, ammonia is a toilet cleaner, methanol is rocket fuel, so that's fun, um, and candle wax. But vaping's cool though, right bro? No, it's not. And I think in the recent, or in this not too far future, we're gonna, people are really going to find out the problems with that. Um, there's a couple of links here you can look at to read up on it. One Juul pod contains roughly the same amount of nicotine found in 20 cigarettes, and they're probably not dosing it out over 20 uh, puffs. So aside from nicotine, e-cigarettes also have a lot of other harmful ingredients, just like regular cigarettes. Uh, but something that's different is the ultra-fine particles, you know, the, the mist that comes out of them. Um, really try not to breathe that in secondhand because it's um, so fine, it can get very deep into the lungs. It can get into all the cells. So that's not going to be good. Some of the flavorings um, contain diacetyl, which is linked to lung disease. Volatile organic chem chemicals or compounds, benzene, which is found in car exhaust. Heavy metals like nickel, chromium, cadmium, tin, aluminum, and lead have all are all potential carcinogens. So no, vaping is not cool, bro. Next is esophageal diverticula. And anything that says diverticula is going to be an outpouching in something. We'll mostly talk about that with the large intestine, uh, diverticulitis. But this is esophageal diverticula, same idea. So there's little outpouchings along the esophagus. If we look down an esophagus through an EGD or even an X-ray, it should be just a nice straight tube. And what happens with diverticuli, it's got these little bulges, these little outpouchings. And when you swallow, things fall into them and get caught in them. And so the patient's gonna report a foul breath odor because of the rotted food that's hanging out in the pouches. Which, that can cause malnutrition uh, because they're not digesting everything, ingesting everything that they take in. Um, it can also lead to perforation because as that food hangs out in there, it rots, gases build up, and it could pop the diverticulum. Uh, it could also lead to aspiration. And how they're going to diagnose it is probably going to be a barium swallow or endoscopy. Barium swallow would be least invasive, and that's where they'll have them drink a chalky uh, liquid, kind of like a smoothie. It's kind of thick. And then they'll take some x-rays of it. And like I said, they would normally see a nice straight tube, but if there's diverticuli, there'll be bulges out along the side of it. Esophageal strictures. Anytime we see stricture, that means a narrowing. And these tend to develop over a long period of time. They can be related to ingesting strong acids or alkalis. So if somebody drinks some bleach or something like that. Also trauma or previous surgery, because that's going to lead to scar formation. And we know scars are hypertrophic. And so as they continue to get hypertrophic, the um, lumen can narrow. And also GERD, because that leads to scarring. So the patient's gonna experience progressive dysphagia. So at first they'll have a little bit of trouble swallowing tough stuff like meat, and then it'll progress to softer things are giving them trouble, and then finally water is gonna be hard to swallow. And they're gonna feel like there's a lump in their throat. So it results in dysphagia, regurgitation, and weight loss again because they're not uh, digesting everything that they take in. Achalasia is a very rare disorder, only about one in a hundred thousand people or about three thousand people a year. And what this is, there is an increased pressure in the lower esophageal sphincter or LES. So an increased PSI in the LES 
and the failure of the LES to relax. And then there's also an absence of useful peristalsis in the LES. So the lower part of the esophagus is just not working right, okay? And what happens is that um, the food can't get from the esophagus into the stomach because it's, it's constricted down there and there's no peristalsis, it's not moving it, and the sphincter's not working. So the esophagus fills up when people eat. Uh, they, get, they feel full quickly. They're gonna have substernal chest pain after a meal because uh, all the stuff is just hanging out in their esophagus. They're also gonna have halitosis because again, the food's gonna rot in there. They'll not be able to belch. They may feel a GERD sensation and they may regurgitate, which is not the same as vomiting. That means that if they bend over, like to tie their shoes, the food's gonna come up because it hasn't been swallowed into the stomach. It's still hanging out in the esophagus. And then that of course will lead to weight loss. So how they treat achalasia is they can do a pneumatic dilation. So they stick a tube down there as if they were doing an EGD uh, they'll, they'll take a, a, a small tube and then thread it down through the esophagus just into the bit of the stomach and then they inflate it and that opens up that narrow passage way and they also can give uh, muscle relaxants or Botox and that is going to have to be done um, semi-regularly like probably every three to six months because they don't last that long. So these treatments um, are not permanent unfortunately. Next thing is esophageal varices. Everybody know what a hemorrhoid is? Okay, so esophageal varices are basically hemorrhoids in your throat, in your esophagus. But that doesn't sound very nice. You don't want to call somebody up and tell them that you got hemorrhoids in your throat. So they changed it to esophageal varices. So what it is, same as hemorrhoids, is dilated, torturous veins, and they're bulging out. And these happen to be in the lower esophagus. And they're related to portal hypertension, which is related to what? Cirrhosis, which is related to what? Alcoholism. So it's very dangerous because there's high pressure because that portal hypertension, it exerts pressure back behind it, up backwards up into the esophagus. So there's a lot of pressure behind it. So these varices can burst and cause life-threatening bleeding. And they have about a 50% fatality. It varies with the extent. So if they only have a couple varices, it's not that serious. If they have more, obviously it's more serious. It accounts for 10 to 30% of all GI bleeds and 30% of cirrhosis patients have esophageal varices when they're diagnosed and 90% if they live 10 years, they will get it. So 90% of cirrhosis patients, if they live 10 years, will end up with varices. So they don't know they have them until sometimes they'll have a coughing fit and they'll start coughing up blood and that usually gets people to to call their doctor or they might be vomiting because it's dripping they may have burst it you know by doing heavy lifting or coughing or something like that and then it's dripping down into their stomach and the stomach isn't going to like that so it may end up rejecting it and may, may they may vomit or they may see old blood in their stool so any of that happens um, hopefully that'll lead somebody to come in for treatment and what they'll do for treatment endoscopic variceal ligation or banding and that's where they're gonna go in with an endoscope and they just put a little uh, band it can be either like a kind of a, a rubber band a little plastic thing on there and it, they just put that around the bulging varice and it causes it to it cuts off circulation it causes it to die and it just kind of falls off it sloughs off and then just passes through uh, the digestive tract they also can do sclerotherapy which is where they inject a strong and irritating solution into the veins 
the blood clots, the vein wall thickens, and it stops bleeding. And again, they'll just kind of shrivel up and die after a while. They may need multiple treatments, but this does reduce the fatality and the risk of recurrence. That's the same thing that people get in their legs when they have varicose veins, they'll have sclerotherapy, and it just causes the veins to shrivel up and go away. So in an emergency, we need to stop the blood loss. And how do we stop blood loss? We apply pressure, right? How do we apply pressure to the esophagus? It has to be from within, so it's going to require a balloon. So we have a Blakemore tube, and it's put in through the nose. It's like an NG tube. And they put it in down the esophagus into the stomach, and then they blow it up. And then that pressure from the blown up balloon exerts pressure on the interior walls of the esophagus and stops the bleeding. It also has a larger balloon that stays in the stomach, and that anchors it in. Because think about who's getting this. Okay, they're probably an alcoholic. They may be actively drunk or detoxing, confused, hallucinating, combative, angry. They may need to be in restraints because are they going to like having a tube up their nose? No, but that's why there's the big balloon in the stomach to help stop them from pulling it out. So that is an emergency situation. You may never see it, um, but just be aware of what that is. So we've got to stop the blood loss, maintain the plasma volumes. They may need a transfusion. And then there's going to be coagulation problems because of the cirrhosis. Whenever the liver is messed up, there's going to be clotting issues. So we're going to need to um, correct that. And then often they'll be given antibiotics uh, in case of infection happening from the bleeding. Next, we'll move into GERD, which is gastroesophageal reflex disease. And it's not really a disease per se, it's more uh, like a set of symptoms that occur together. Um, it's mostly related to an incompetent LES. So that's the primary factor in GERD. There is just, the LES is supposed to close up when you swallow. After you swallow, it closes tight, and it doesn't do that in this situation. And that allows the gastric contents to come back up. So we've got the gastric juices, the acids, and, and food particles, they come up into the esophagus. And over time, that's, that's going to cause damage. It's not going to be good. So certain foods, some people have different triggers, but caffeine and chocolate are um, often to blame, and anticholinergics because they delay the gastric emptying. Uh, there also could be a problem if the if there's a problem with the pyloric sphincter, which prevents the food from leaving the stomach, pressure can build up and then it has nowhere to go but up. So that can also um, lead to GERD. So it gets worse when somebody is supine, so if they lie down. So one of the teachings we're going to do is not have them lie flat. So what should, how should we do the head of bed? At least 30 degrees. And at the hospital, that's easy. You just push a button. At home, they can put their uh, bed up on cement blocks or milk crates or something like that, or at the very least have two or three pillows or a wedge pillow. So they need to keep their head of bed elevated. What about meal size and number? S small, frequent meals, not the three big ones. And then as they are lying in bed too, if we want them to tilt one side or the other, which side would be better to have them lie on? the right side because that's where the pyloric sphincter is so that's going to help the food move out of the stomach and prevent it from coming up. So those are some patient teachings there. So the biggest uh, manifestation is going to be heartburn. So they feel this burning around their heart, that's why it's called that, but it's actually in the esophagus. So a burning tight sensation felt beneath the lower sternum. It can spread upward to the throat or the jaw. 
and it's felt intermittently, most frequently after meals. It can be relieved by alkaline substances or sometimes water. Uh, more commonly, we're going to treat it with medications, though. We'll talk about that in a minute. So Barrett's esophagus is one of the complications that can happen. I mentioned that a bit ago. And what happens there is the normal squamous epithelium of the esophagus is replaced by columnar epithelium. And columnar epithelium is what the stomach cells are. So it's actually changing the cells of the esophagus into the cells of the stomach. So they're more uh, acid resistant. But it does become a precancerous lesion. And only about 5 to 15% of people with GERD get this. So that's good. Uh, signs and symptoms, it can be none, or there can be some bleeding, or even perforation. It can go all the way through. And so when someone has been diagnosed with Barrett's, they need to have endoscopy monitoring every 6 to 12 months. And do you think people do that? No. So there's some pictures that show you um, how that manifests. So take a look at those. Other good complications, um, just esophageal ulcers and then esophageal cancer, again, because of the chronic irritation. So anytime anything in the body is chronically irritated by acid or just something poking at it or whatever it, uh, that's causing an injury, um, that predisposes you to cancer in that area. So the acid continually eroding at those cells can lead to cancer. Respiratory problems because... Uh, the upper airway can be damaged by secretions. They can also um, inhale that into the lungs. Dental erosion, especially in the back teeth, and vocal changes, which is my situation. Um, the GERD has made my vocal cords all red and irritated, and um, that's why the, the more I talk, the worse I sound. There's a chart that shows the progression of GERD. So take a look at those pictures, and you can see uh, exactly what's happening in there and then we've got um, some foods to avoid so there's a chart with just some common foods gas forming foods uh, anything with carbonation like sodas are going to be bad peppermint chocolate and coffee so peppermint mochas are out that's not good so what are we going to do to treat it? We're going to give them medications. And there's two approaches, a step up and a step down. And with a step up, we're going to start with a weaker medication and hope that that works. And if it doesn't, then we'll step up to the harder drugs. And with a step down, opposite. They're in a pretty serious outbreak uh, or situation with, with GERD. And so we're going to start with the big guns and then drop it down, hopefully, as things get better. So the step up is when their symptoms are more minor and step down is when their symptoms are major. So the first one is the histamine receptor blockers, and those are the tadines, famotidine, ranitidine, cimetidine, nizatidine, and H2 receptor blockers. They antagonize the parietal cell receptors, the H2 receptor blockers. And so that decreases the gastric secretion, the amount of acid that's available in there. It reduces symptoms and allows for esophageal healing in about half of the patients. So this medication does not heal it. It doesn't fix the problem, but it decreases the acid, which allows the tissue to kind of rest and repair itself. Not a lot of side effects, and it's best taken at night to decrease the histamine release that occurs in the stomach. There's a caution with cimetidine. It increases the bioavailability of many drugs like beta blockers and morphine and warfarin. So uh, if they are taken together, uh, it'll increase their potency. It also passes the blood-brain barrier and can cause CNS effects. 
and it reacts with antacids. So if we give antacids, they need to be separated from uh, the tadines. Then we have the PPIs, proton pump inhibitors, and they inhibit the proton pump. Protons are acid molecules, and so as the proton pump squirts out protons, that means there's more um, acid, and these block that, they decrease it. So these are the prozoles, omeprazole, esomeprazole, pantoprazole, lansoprazole. Um, they suppress gastric acid secretion, and they promote healing in 80 to 90% of patients. So these are the harder, uh, stronger medications, and they have some side effects, headache, diarrhea, abdominal pain, nausea. Um, Long-term use has some issues as well. Uh, we'll get to that in a minute. And then antacids are the basic easy meds. Those are all we had until about 20 years ago or so. And they are quick acting, but short lasting. So you take a Tums or a Rolaids and you feel better pretty quickly, but then an hour or two later you might have symptoms again. So they are basic and they neutralize the acid. They should be taken one to three hours after meals or at bedtime or as needed. And we wanna allow one hour between administering antacids and other medications because medications need the acid to break them down, the acid in the stomach. So we don't wanna give antacids when we give other regular medications. There are aluminum com containing um, preparations, the Malox or Alucap. These are slower acting and they have a lot of sodium. So you wanna take care with people that have kidney or heart disease or hypertension. And they may also cause constipation. Then we have calcium carbonate. That's your Mylanta and Tums. Those are fast acting. They also may cause constipation. Side effects, belching and flatulence because of the carbon dioxide that's being released in the stomach. And then we have magnesium hydroxide or milk of magnesia. And this is fast acting. It has magnesium in it. So we wanna take care in patients that have kidney disorders because the kidneys get rid of the magnesium. And so if they can't, then we could lead to, that could lead to magnesium toxicity. And these, because they cause diarrhea, they're more commonly used as a laxative in the hospital. And then we have cholinergics. So they're gonna increase the pressure in the LES and that improves esophageal emptying. Um, that increases gastric emptying. The negative side effect, it does stimulate hydrochloric acid secretion. So that's no good. Uh, and then gastrointestinal stimulants. There's a prokinetic drug that we talked about with nausea that stimulates GI motility. What was that? Metoclopramide or Reglin. So PPIs are stronger than H2s. And there's been evidence, evidence has shown that C. diff is a higher risk if someone's on PPIs. So think about what's happening. They are taking these pills every day that decreases the acid in their stomach. We need the acid to break down our food and it also kills bugs and pathogens that we take in. And so without that acid, C. diff can flourish and then they get a C. diff infection. Blocking acid production also decreases intrinsic factor. And what is intrinsic factor for? We need that to escort B12 to be absorbed in the small intestine. B12 cannot be absorbed without intrinsic factors. So they bond together and then they go to the small intestine and get absorbed. And if you're not getting B12, the type of anemia you're gonna have is pernicious anemia. And B12 is important for the health of your peripheral and central nervous system. So brain health, nerve health, also red blood cell production, 
and happiness. So if we have a B12 deficiency, it can be because of inadequate intake of B12, um, but also if we have a lack of absorption because of the lack of acid and the lack of intrinsic factor. So treatment, uh, sometimes with diet, citrus fruits, dried beans, green leafy vegetables, liver, nuts, and organ meats, gross, uh, oral supplementation, or cyanocobalamin injections. So if somebody has had their stomach removed or part of their stomach removed or they've got chronic GERD and they're on PPIs all the time, they may need injections. So if somebody doesn't have a stomach, they're definitely going to need them. And they're going to get them weekly at first and then monthly all through their life. So decreased B12 levels lead to irritability. And so um, that's why we want to help treat that as well as the um, nerve and brain health. So again, our nursing interventions, just to recap, uh, nursing interventions for GERD, medications, the H2s, PPIs, prokinetics, and antacids, be familiar with those. Patient education, small, frequent meals, avoid caffeine, smoking, chocolate, peppermint, spicy foods, alcohol, carbonated drinks, all the good stuff. Elevate the head of bed, even at home, and avoid tight or restricted clothing that's going to force the uh, digestive contents up into the esophagus. And that's as far as we're going to go here. We'll continue on with other stomach disorders in the next episode.